This is Trepwire Week in Review for week ending May 7th. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Joe McBride, Head of Siri Finance. This week, President Biden sets a new vaccination goal of 160 million fully vaccinated by July 4th, and states offer incentives to the vaccine reluctant. And the hard-hit New York region has accelerated reopening. In economic news, earnings reports this week continue to beat estimates, but stocks were mixed. In other economic data, initial unemployment claims dipped below 500,000 for the first time since the pandemic crisis. And the TREP CMBS delinquency rate for April dropped again for the 10th consecutive month. And Manus, the jobs number for April is expected to show a robust bounce tomorrow. People are thinking that could be a million new jobs added, which would be of a piece. You know, earlier this week, ADP had 750,000 new jobs, give or take, which was slightly below expectations, but factors above where it has been in previous months. So let's run through the high points and the low points of the week, and then maybe talk about, you know, what keeps me up at night these days. Uh, Many of these you touched upon already, Martha, the high points, better than expected earnings this season, really some great uh, numbers across the board tumbling jobless claims, uh, rising jobs numbers. And uh, even though, you know, there's been more than hints of inflation that hasn't been reflected uh, recently in the 10-year treasury rate. So those are all high points of this week. Low points, you know, real inflation in materials, in lumber, copper, et cetera, continues to plague the construction market and, and drive cost of housing up real inflation in housing in general because of lack of supply, shortages of workers. Um, We're seeing wage inflation for sure and shortages of supplies, things like chips and and other things. And then more broadly, of course, rising COVID numbers abroad, particularly India, which took a bite out of the airlines stocks midweek this week. So um, plenty to point at for the bulls, plenty to point at for the bears, but The thing that probably keeps me up most at night these days is the threat of overreach out of Washington at at this point. When you talk about the things that we've been seeing in aggregate, you know, the impact on the cost of capital is going to be enormous, right? In terms of when you think about it, what we've seen out of Washington just in the last couple of weeks is um, a 40% increase, I should say 60% increase in the capital gains tax rate, an uptick of 33%, and these are all proposals, of course, in the business tax rate, income tax hikes. We already know that there's gonna be state and local tax income hikes and a tabling of the 1031 uh, exemption, which we're gonna talk about in more detail later. And you know, I, I think what people are counting on is at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff gets pared back that we meet halfway. Uh, And and none of this is as draconian as the original numbers look. But when you add them all together today, if the White House wins the day, you know, this can be an enormous overshoot and can really uh, weigh on the markets going forward. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned uh, inflation. Uh, I guess it's not funny. We've been talking about it a lot, but I was putting together a presentation for uh, something I'm doing in a couple of weeks and 
you know, going through all of our data is all well and good. And then I put just a smattering of things on this slide. And the name of the slide is inflation is not an issue, dot, dot, dot. The less we say about it, the better, which little talking heads uh, lyric right there. But just today, the price of chicken has essentially doubled. The uh, total assets on the Federal Reserve balance sheet almost doubled since pre-pandemic. Personal income from the Federal Reserve starting, and it's, it's kind of almost, you know, funny in a way that in their graphs, the shaded regions are recessions. And in this shaded region of COVID time, personal income in aggregate has gone up from 19 trillion to 24 trillion. So tell me another recession in the past where incomes have gone up by 20% or 25%, right? So your concept of we haven't seen the inflation yet, or we are seeing the inflation, but no one's admitting it. It's just like, it's smacking everybody in the face, right? And on the wage side of it, of the, of the ledger, that's just going to be, you know, massive, right? We talked a little bit about it last week. You know, there's a headline in here, millions are unemployed. Why can't companies find workers? Fast food companies offering hundreds of dollars for people signing bonuses just to come in. And maybe some of that is good. Maybe some of, maybe, you know, raising the, uh, the you know, the low scale, low wage wages slightly is not the worst thing in the world. But to say that there is no inflation or that there won't be, I think is, is foolish. Now, on the other side of the world, we have things like office negative net absorption, like to 30, 20, 30 million square feet, you know? So like there may be some slack in some areas of the market where you won't see this inflation, but if there is some, you have to think that cap rates, they have to expand, right? Like, and if they don't, maybe, maybe they won't because maybe we've just living in this, this Shangri-La land of, forever easy monetary policy and forever quantitative easing and forever trillions of dollars of stimulus, right? And maybe the hawks and the, the deficit warriors of the past hundred years uh, have been wrong, but I highly doubt it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, going back to, to my theme of, you know, Washington gets it wrong being the things that keep me up at night, you know, number one in that is, the inflation, right? The Fed gets it wrong. They miss the mark. Prices soar. And to your point, Joe, yes, there could be wage inflation. And yes, that could be uh, beneficial to uh, people at the lower end of the income spectrum. But if that is eaten up by chicken prices doubling, food prices doubling, housing prices going up dramatically, that's that's a false benefit, right? There's There's no there's no gain in the standard of living for those at the lowest end of the economic crisis. So, you know, the Fed getting it wrong is worry number one. Washington getting too carried away with, with taxes and regulation being number two. And then the third one is, and this is more of a pet peeve, but I've talked about it before, too much castor oil coming out of Washington in terms of getting the economy open and not enough encouragement out of boys, let's get going type of thing. And to that point, this week, I got word that a friend of mine, his son is going to get married in August uh, in New York, but not in New York City. And they informed them that there'll be no dancing 
at the wedding, if you can imagine that. And this is a case where you want banquet halls to open, you want weddings to happen, you want bands to get paid, you want servers to get work. And here we are haggling over whether people or not can dance. And, and let's be perfectly frank about this. People go to weddings to watch people like me dance, <laughs> right? They should not be deprived of that moment of hilarity. Mm, I'm picturing the Footloose movie where they were not allowed to thing. dance. So that is weird. You know, that's what people come to see. People like me down a couple of beers and then all of a sudden we think we're uh, Michael Jackson, you know? That's... I just picture you, you know, finger guns pointing both ways, you Definitely. know, head tilted up, back and forth with the hips swiveling. So let's turn to retail. You're watching a deal in the works that you're going to break down for our listeners. As our listeners know, you know, the, the hardest part hit of the entire industry has probably been shopping malls, right? We've certainly seen a lot of problems with hotels, um, but malls overall probably have been the single hardest hit segment of the market, even before COVID, right? Bankruptcies, loss of anchors, loss of foot traffic, competition from e-commerce. Um, we've seen many B and C class malls uh, trading for 10 and 20 cents on the dollar, uh, the value of properties dropping 90% in some cases from where they were 10 years ago um, in the worst case. But we did have a, a green shoot this week, and that is we saw a single asset deal price that was backed primarily by retail collateral. In this particular case, it's a $455 million loan uh, it's part of, or it's the only loan behind WFCMT 2021-FCMT. The two assets behind the loan are the Fashion Center in Arlington. It is a 650,000 square foot uh, shopping mall. It represents 90% of the loan balance by allocated loan balance. Uh, the other part of the collateral is the Metro Center office also in Arlington. It has about 170,000 square feet. The combined portfolio value of the two properties, 926 million, giving the loan an LTV of 49. And Joe will walk through the pricing of this particular bond and loan. But the good news is that this provides a bonafide benchmark for owners of class A malls to understand what kind of proceeds they can get on refinancing, what kind of terms they can get on, uh, on a loan and, and so forth. Yes, this is a three-year floating rate with two 12-month extension options type deal. It's not you know, a, a non-stabilized CRE CLO type deal, so it is kind of a stabilized asset. Looking at the pricing here, we have basically a weighted average uh, cost of capital or a weighted average spread of 292 basis points over LIBOR. It's kind of funny that they're still pricing loans off LIBOR, but I guess they're going to do that for, uh, until the last possible second. But at the AAA senior level, we're at 120 basis points over LIBOR. And at the triple B minus level, level, they're at 350. Now, may not mean much unless you're like a true bond guy uh, paying attention here, but just to give you a sense of, you know, relative cost of capital here, looking at some other single asset deals that have priced right around the same time. We have one that came out from Goldman 
80 basis points at the AAA senior level. Uh, another that came uh, from JP Morgan, 90 basis point at the AAA senior and 180 at the triple B minus. So, I mean, obviously with single asset deals like this, the pricing is very much, you know, specific to the, the asset uh, that's serving as collateral. But, you know, just to see, even though there is some widening on the spread here, it's still good to see that this deal can get done. And like Manis said, if we think about the allocated balance and assume that the allocated value is the same proportion, then that would tell us that the retail portion of this or the mall portion of this is around 840 million, which is up from, what was it, 500 and something in the last Seven, deal, Manis? 765. So the mall alone back to 2011 deal, which will now be either prepaid or defeated, is probably prepaid um, in the near term. The mall alone in 2011 was valued at 765 million. To your point, Joe, if you take the 926 million total value across both the office and the mall part and divide it 90-10, which is how the loan is allocated, you're talking about 830, 840 million of value to the mall today, which is you know 70 million above where it was 10 years ago. And there's not too many borrowers that can say that about their malls. So it does go to show that there's still a lot of value in the class A mall. Um, going a little bit further, you know, in this particular case, Arlington is a terrific market. They've attracted Amazon and other big tech firms, um, really bright prospects for that area. So, you know, you can never compare um, one mall to another completely but it should give guys at Simon and Brookfield and other places a benchmark for what their cost of capital will be uh, as they look to refinance down the road. And frankly, the fact that they could get this done at, I think you said 292, Joe, all in, and only 40 basis points wider at the AAA level than other single asset deals, I think is an extraordinary vote of confidence on the side of investors that the AAA mall or the, the Class A mall is, is here to stay. Going back to your point, Joe, though, you mentioned two other deals, the Goldman Sachs deal, I think at 80, and the JP Morgan deal at 90. What types of uh, properties were those? Those weren't malls. No, the Goldman deal was industrial, 97% industrial, and the JP Morgan deal was multifamily. So uh, the two most uh, promising or and or resilient uh, asset classes there. So maybe not the best comparison. We have a couple of office deals uh, that were priced uh, a couple of weeks earlier, 115 AAA senior, 98 AAA senior. So, you know, a little bit closer to that 120 that, the, that this retail deal got. You know, again, you can't compare these two things precisely. I'm sure the office guys and the industrial guys both got uh, much higher proceeds, much higher LTVs than the shopping mall guy had to, although I don't have the data in front of me. But I think that if you had asked people six months ago, could even a guy with a class A mall get a triple A spread that's only 40 basis points wider than industrial or multifamily, regardless of uh, leverage, I, I think people would have called you crazy. And now here we are, uh, seeing that deal get executed now. So uh, by no means are we calling, you know, a bottom to the, to the mall space. I think the B's and the C's 
have an awful lot of, of pain to go and uh, some probably some shockingly bad results. There's not a lot of rescue capital there, as, as one of my uh, listeners told me this week. But it is a, a ray of hope for the guys that own the stronger stuff. And turning to some other retail stories, we've got green shoots. We've got our crabgrass. Let's hear what some of those were. Well, never does one week's news headlines make a trend, but we did have more green shoots than crabgrass uh, this week. And here's, I'll run them off kind of one by one. Uh, the Jordan Creek Mall in West Des Moines, Iowa, uh, it's adding an H&M um, retail store, 25,000 square feet. It's going to be occupying a space where Yonkers used to be. They were uh, one of the subsidiaries of Bonton. Bonton liquidated in 2018. So that parcel has been empty. Von Mauer, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is almost. opening almost opening a store in 2022. They're both H&M and Von Mauer will be non-collateral <laughs> stores. Mar, Mar. Von, Von Mar. Mar. Von Mar. <laughs> there we go are non-collateral anchors behind a $190 million loan that backs a 2013 and 2014 deals. So a couple of green shoots there, H&M and uh, Von Mar coming to that uh, West Des Moines market. We saw via auction two REO legacy assets, one in Lakeland, Florida, and one in Cleveland, Tennessee. Both got top bids that were higher than the most recent valuation that the servicer had given. Uh, in its data, uh, these are two properties that back the same 2007 legacy deal. So the people uh, who own that deal should presumably see higher proceeds from the liquidation of those two assets than perhaps they were anticipating. We did see a positive story. Uh, I think it was Commercial Observer stating that some malls are starting to use charter schools as new tenants going forward, which at least in this case, it is in some ways pulling in the same direction, right? If a family drops off their children at the charter school, you know, there's a chance that the same person is going to say, well, let me run in and, and get my school supplies. Let me run in at a grocery and get, you know, tonight's dinner stuff. It does kind of move in the same direction. And I love that potential use case uh, for the malls. It does kind of populate them with both a paying tenant, although probably a low paying tenant, but also more foot traffic. I won't go into our talk from last time when we talked about this, right? Where I could only imagine the kind of hijinks I would have gotten up to if I was in high school in a mall. Mr. Somebody actually, I think... Will M uh, reached out to me and said he had no idea about that little escalator trick that we talked about. Now you'll have to go back and listen to know what escalator trick I'm talking about. Educational. So not all the, the data was positive. We did have a story come out this week that the Dick's Sporting Goods at the shops at Buckland Hills in Connecticut will be closing. Dick's is a collateral tenant at that particular mall. The story was broken by the Hartford Business Journal Dix has 15% of the space. As I noted, they are a collateral tenant. The property backs a CMBX six loan, which represents almost 16% of the collateral 
behind MSC 2012 C4. So this is that other side of the coin, the store closing, the tenant occupying a big percentage of the space and, you know, a concern for that particular mall going forward. I got to give a plug to our LITS, which is our loans in the spotlight page, which we put together. We put together all sorts of different loans in the spotlight pages over the years and, and going forward. And many of them have been Sears closings, right? Sears announces they're going to close 100 stores. We go in and we figure out anywhere where they're tied to either their collateral anchors or their non-collateral anchors of CMBS retail properties. This is one of them, right? I think Sears uh, announced it would be closing late last year. I don't know if they're closed already, but they had announced that the closing was going to happen. It's, it's a non-collateral tenant, but uh, still, again, remember Lonnie with his co-tenancy clauses and just lower foot traffic in general when you lose a big anchor, something to, to keep your eye out for. So for those of, for those of you who are non-clients, you're missing out. I'm just saying. And while we're on the subject of retail, let's cover the deal of the week. So it's of a similar ilk of some of the other stuff we talked about with the, the green shoots. This comes from uh, the New York Real Estate Journal. The Heidenberg Properties Group, which owns the Coles Plaza near Albany, New York, has signed a lease with Farmers India Market for 30,000 square feet. They are a specialty grocer. Uh, the entire property has about 140,000 square feet. So, you know, something like 22% of the space will be occupied by Farmers India in this particular case. The beauty of this is that the property used to have a, an office max, which will be vacating in June, 2021. So there won't be a lot of time between that lease ending Oh. So there'll be some redevelopment time, but uh, the grocer will be coming in there pretty soon. No offense to Office Max, but talk about an upgrade. Going from an Office Max to a grocery store, like that's that's just big. Right, with not a lot of downtime in between the leases. So that's terrific. Uh, Bruce Ginsburg of Icon Realty in Albany uh, was one of the brokers on the deal. I'm not sure who he represented, if it was uh, the tenant or the owner of the property. Corey... Tykczynski and Peter Cavago of NAI were also brokers on the transaction. And uh, just great to see. Like I said uh, many times before, we do like to talk about green shoots, particularly in parts of the market that have been hard hit and certainly getting a, an office depot out and a grocer in is a, is a positive direction for that borrower in uh, that property owner in Albany. Turning to our delinquency report that was released this week, what are some of the details behind the delinquency report and the big story behind the data? The big story is, well, there's several headlines. Headline number one is for the 10th consecutive month, we saw a dip in the delinquency rate. It was modest this month, uh, a drop of six basis points overall. So we're seeing a little bit of a slowing of the improvement of the rate. We went from 10.32% in June, and now we're in the 6% range, 6.5% at this point. Uh, those are some of the headlines we've seen. Some of the sub-headlines out of this report, a very big improvement in the percentage of hotel loans that are with a special servicer. That improved about 
percentage points. To be sure, the number is still extraordinarily high at 21%, but we did see about a 2.5% reduction in the rate between March and April. We saw modest improvement in the retail segment, and we saw the percentage of loans that are in grace period, using the grace period, but are not yet 30 days delinquent, stay pretty close to that 2% range. So even though the headline number improved only modestly, there are a lot of positive signs to take away from this month's report and indications that we're starting to come out of this, particularly in the hotel area. Yeah, every month when you talk about the delinquency rate numbers, I, I've been bringing up the special servicing numbers and how you know, special servicing rates have stayed essentially flat. So, and we were waiting to see that you know, start to come down. So not, not a huge decrease, but a, but a decrease worth mentioning. So hopefully we see that over the next couple of months uh, continue. And we'll know that that shadow delinquency rate is actually coming down slightly. We have a couple of news stories in some subsectors in office. WeWork was in the news. Well, WeWork is, as we know, rejecting leases right and left. Uh, we know it's happened in New York, Washington, D.C., and Boston. It was unclear to us, you know, precisely if this was consensual, where the lease was being broken and the property owner was taking it back, you know, that would be unlikely. Um, but very few details were, were given around these things. But this week, we saw a story from Commercial Observer that said Walter and Samuels was suing WeWork for $37 million, uh, after it claimed... WeWork defaulted on its lease in the Chelsea neighborhood near Madison Square Garden uh, in Midtown, South Manhattan area. WeWork had a lease that I believe was supposed to go through 2031. They stopped paying on the lease. They were sued by the landlord. And now that's off to the New York Supreme Court for this to be contested. I think we see a lot more of this going forward. As I said, there's, it, it has been unclear for many of these lease terminations, how consensual this has been. Uh, I think what we'll find out as things go on is that more and more of these landlords are going to try to hold WeWork feet to the fire and try to get them to honor their leases that they put in place. Manis or Martha, did you see the WeWork documentary on Hulu? I did. What'd you think? It was crazy. It was, if you guys haven't seen it, you got to watch it. It's you crazy. know, it's almost like it was a cult. Like yeah. the guy was a cult leader, straight up. And it was very much, if, if any of you have ever seen Wild Wild Country, which was also a cult in the 70s out in the West Coast somewhere, led by a guru, uh, it was like Wild Wild Country in commercial real estate. And it's interesting because coming out of the pandemic, I actually think, I think there's enough, they could probably do enough healthy protocols or whatever you want to do, but there's going to be need for flexible office space, both on the way down and the way up, right? So companies may get rid of their, you know, large headquarters space or may downsize it by 50%, but then still need a couple of offices or a couple of conference rooms here and there that they could spin up as needed. So I do think that this co-working model is not a dead model. I just think that these guys expanded and expanded and expanded so quickly, partially or 
very much helped out by the fact that any bank was going to give them a crazy valuation at the time. But my favorite line in the whole thing was this professor from NYU who actually has his own podcast. He goes, they're renting effing desks, right? They're not changing the world. They're not, you know, curing uh, world hunger or anything. They're just renting desks. But that was the whole appeal of this Adam Newman guy who I once saw walking down the street on 48th Street, and he was tall. So I will give him that. Yeah, it's worth a watch if you haven't seen it. Some other office headlines we were watching uh, this week, Goldman on the positive side coming back in June, which is a good sign for New York City. Uh, on the negative side, SockGen, which is big tenant at 245 Park Avenue near Grand Central. They seem committed to a three-day week work week in the office, which would be disappointing. And ING, which I believe is at 133 Broadway in Manhattan, is saying 50, 50, 50% 50 on, 50% off. Lastly, a story that will run on Friday morning, the Boston Consulting Group is moving its offices from Bethesda, Maryland to Washington, DC. There's a loan to watch from a 2016 deal. Boston Consulting has 40% of the space in the Bethesda office. It backs a $51 million loan. The loan matures in October, and that will be one to watch going forward. The BCG lease ends in 2022. I just saw a tweet which says Coinbase, which actually recently IPO'd. Coinbase is committed to being remote first. We announced we no longer have headquarters. And as a next step, we're closing our San Francisco office, our former headquarters in 2022. So here's what I'm thinking. The whole crypto thing has always kind of made me a little bit uneasy because they've said, you know, you shouldn't keep your crypto hooked up to your laptop or your PC. It should be in cold storage and, and so forth. But I did invest in, in Coinbase right around the time of their IPO. So I own some Coinbase. But my thinking was, right, there's some like Fort Knox type security in their San Francisco office, which is keeping this stuff under lock and key, right? All this uh, crypto, you know, that, that building could withstand, a, you know, a category five hurricane or, you know, an earthquake or whatever. And now I have this image of all these little diskettes being taken home to people and residing all over Silicon Valley in people's <laughs> like uh, pantries, you know, hey, Bob, you know, uh, we're not going to have the office anymore. How would you feel about taking, you know, 75 hard disks home for the weekend and putting them in your uh, in your garage? Well, I think you should sell, first of all, because they're going to have lots and lots of competitors and they already do. But I do like the idea of in, it's the old adage of uh, when there's a gold rush, sell shovels, right? So don't buy Bitcoin, but buy the exchange because they they charge all of these exchanges charge just unbelievable fees. Uh, at this point, but that's just going to get taken down and down and down. And eventually like Fidelity or I, if they haven't already, they're just going to start selling this stuff and Coinbase is going to go away, I think. But now all the crypto bros out there, don't send me any hate mail, please. I own, I own a little Bitcoin. All right. All right. Get off my back. You're going to get some. So Manish, you talked about regulatory news. A federal judge on Wednesday threw out the CDC's nationwide moratorium on evictions. And I got to say, you heard it here first. I think the, the, that judge is a listener because that's literally what we said the day this happened. 
CDC, they can't do this. This is not under their power. So good for this judge and good for, you know, justice here. And uh, the CDC actually argued that they wanted the justice's decision to only apply to the states that actually had sued, which I think was Alabama and Georgia. I may be, I may be missing one there, but the judge said, no, this, is, this applies all across the US because you do not have this authority. Now, New York still has a moratorium and there are like state level moratoriums out there, but this is a- 43 states a, actually. So you know what? I, if, you, if your state government, which has the authority to do this, does this, sure. But I mean, what's next, right? No dancing at no weddings. Dancing. Yeah. No dancing at weddings. We got to make a movie about that, right? We could have like this guy, he's from a big city. His parents die. He's got to go out in his Volkswagen to, you know, someplace out in the outback and they won't let him dance. I think there's some potential for that. Kevin Bacon right? might be available. Can we get that, uh, can we get that greenlit? Nayreet reported that the multifamily markets rebounded with the second highest net absorption on record. And recent anecdotes suggest the market might be strengthening further during its spring leasing season. So Joe, I know you're looking at multifamily REITs and how their performance this past quarter turned out. Yeah. And apologies if you hear any sort of screaming in the background. It's absolute mayhem downstairs in my house right now. Yeah, so I looked at uh, Avalon Bay and Equity Residential, basically two of the largest uh, multifamily REITs. I listened to most of Avalon Bay's earnings call, and uh, I looked at some of the presentations and some of the stuff from from both. And you know, first I'll give you the high level, right? To me, the high level is concessions are decreasing, net effective rents are not to pre-COVID levels, but they're very close. Unsurprisingly, the markets you would expect, New York City, San Francisco, those kind of you know, major urban centers are still farther away from their pre-COVID peaks, but they are getting better. The number of tours, the number of move-ins versus move-outs are all trending in very good directions. I would also say that we're going to get into, in the second quarter, you know, not only with the REITs, but with everybody, we're going to get into these crazy comps situations right? Because everything is year over year comps. So the year over year changes in Q2 versus Q2 of 2020 are just going to be kind of off the charts. So I'll give you a couple of uh, points here. So this is Avalon Bay. Year over year rental revenue change was 9.1% down. So negative 9.1%. And they do a nice breakout here. So 3.6% is due to lower lease rates. 2.4 is due to concessions and other discounts. 2.3% of that, of that 9.1% is from uncollectible lease revenue. So people who are just not paying. And then a couple of other things add to a few of those basis points. Now, they also break it down by region. So the only positive region um, that's broken out here in Avalon Bay is Denver, Colorado. Now, I will say on the earnings call, they did mention that that is a fairly new market for them and they only have a couple of assets. So it's a little bit of a smaller sample size, but if we look at some of these other areas, and I'm, I'm going to do NOI now instead of rental revenue, NOI New England down 11%, NOI in Metro New York, New Jersey also up down 11%, Mid-Atlantic down 13%, Pacific Northwest down 15%, Southern California down 13%, Northern California down 22%. So 
couple of other things from the call that they had mentioned there, Southern California, you know, current rental rates and current um, occupancies are actually around pre-COVID levels. Uh, whereas Northern California, which is mostly kind of San Francisco, uh, is still kind of a ways off. On the equity residential side, I'll just mention a couple more numbers before I put everybody to sleep here. At its worst, equity residential was down about 200 basis points in terms of occupancy. They had started kind of pre-COVID times at between 95 and 96%. They had dropped to, you know, 94% or so, which doesn't doesn't seem that bad, but uh, it is a decent drop. And now they're at, you know, just just under 96% or so. So they've really seemed to have rebounded well. There's a couple other uh, things here. Their pricing or their average asking rents are uh, in the 2,600 range, which is up from just over 2,200 uh, several months ago, which was, which was its lowest. So, you know, green shoots, I guess, is the word for it, right? So everything is kind of trending in the right direction for them. I did hear a couple of good questions from some of the analysts on the call about, you know, what did they see as the impact of more working from home or hybrid work or whatever. And a couple of the things where that's obviously suburban multifamily has actually performed very well during this time. They are interested or, or they're, they're bullish on some of their larger you know, townhouse style multifamily apartments, right? With separate entrances and more space for people to have home offices and things like that. So, you know, I guess a lot of positive elements here, but not, they're not all the way back. So we don't talk about multifamily that much because, you know, it's generally done okay, but it's good to check in on it every now and then. So pivoting back to the subject of regulation, President Biden's proposed $1.9 trillion economic plan would eliminate a tax break. And we've talked about it here before on the podcast, the 1031 exchange. Apparently, it will possibly be a loophole that's closed. And we had Lonnie Henry on here probably several months ago, if I recall, where we talked about the details. But the talk has heated up because now it seems that there's push to get this loophole eliminated. What would that impact be to investors? Well, it's interesting. It's been a concern for quite a while. Back in 2017, uh, it was talked about perhaps being scaled back. Don Sheets in 2016 brought that up as a potential risk to the market. Rick Jones last year talked about how a flip in the administration could raise the stakes. If I remember correctly, he said, you know, elections have consequences and this could be one of them for the CRE market. And, and it really does seem to be really quite there in the crosshairs right now as potentially going away. The long story short about 1031 is it's an opportunity for a property owner to invest in a property, see its value increase, but then sell that particular property, redeploy the profits of that first property into a second property without taking a capital gains hit on the profits they've made on the property that they are selling. Uh, it has to be done within a certain period of time and there's all kinds of rules about it, but make no mistake, 1031 is an incredible lubricant to the commercial real estate investment cycle. The fact that people get favorable tax treatment 
that somebody could redeploy uh, money very quickly from one stabilized asset into another asset that needs investment and upgrade, you know, some spit and polish, something like that makes the, the reinvestment cycle in real estate uh, extremely efficient, extremely quick, extremely desirable for the people that uh, put money to work. And I do think, and we may get some pushback from our listeners, that this does trickle down, that people will look at dilapidated projects and say, I could put money into this, I could double the value, I could keep that value tax-free and go to the next thing. And that allows uh, class B and class C housing to get upgraded for people to maintain properties, to put money into it, to improve it. And, and I think that you know perhaps there should be some tweaking around the edges for this legislation, but to wipe it out entirely uh, would be very, very detrimental to developers, uh, people in the construction business, vendors, any, anybody and everybody. It's a, it's a bad decision. I have two thoughts. First of all, I just think they throw this in, in every first salvo uh, of budget or tax negotiations, and it historically has always come out. I think that will happen again. I mean, let's be serious. Every Democrat in Congress probably has some sort of real estate investments going on, or they have many wealthy friends who do, um, and wealthy lobbyists who do. So it would surprise me if this actually does go through. But if it does, the trickle-down effect is less money for brokers, less money for appraisers, less... I saw that... I have to give credit. I saw this on LinkedIn. I saw a guy... Uh, do a little video about it. I can't, I can't remember his name. I gotta give, I can't give him credit. So apologies for that. But, you know, all of the people who support transactions, right, environmental guys, appraisers, uh, all those types of things are going to potentially uh, see a dip in transaction volume. And like you said, Manis, it's not like this money gets taken out and then like disappears it gets reallocated and reinvested into new properties. And, you know, these 1031 exchanges usually happen on properties where tons of appreciation has happened. And when that, a lot of that appreciation is forced appreciation where a, an owner has come in and actually made a property better. So like, do we want to support making uh, office buildings and and especially apartment buildings better places to live for people I would I would think so that's what I give to Joe forced appreciation or maybe it's begrudging appreciation did you, just, did you but... say forced depreciation is that what you said <laughs> forced uh, depreciation <laughs> but you know I, I do think that the people that take advantage of the 1031 are not just you know the super high end of things in fact if anything, it's probably more tilted towards the middle to lower end of the spectrum where people are investing in class B and class C and probably housing. I think probably housing gets as much of this investment as anything. And I think if you take this away uh, at the risk of repeating myself, I think that the housing stock degrades the opportunities for people you know, at the lower end of the economic spectrum become lower. Uh, the housing stock shrinks and prices go up. This is the last thing I'll say about it. If 
the concept is we are going to, you know, extract more money from these capital gains. And these capital gains are only going to the wealthiest of institutions. If that hypothesis is true, then let me give you another hypothesis. Hypothesis. The wealthiest of these institutions will figure out a way not to pay this tax, right? So like, let's just, can we stop already? Can we just, you know, continue living our lives here? Stop arguing about this stuff. Like stop trying to change everything. You know what I mean? Well, there's some 31 trade or, uh, organizations and associations that agree with you guys, including the uh, American Farm Bureau, Mortgage Bankers Association, Hotel and Lodging Association, and a lot more. And in a, a letter that they sent to Yellen, it said that like-kind exchanges, which is what they're also known as, support an estimated 568,000 jobs and generate $55 billion annually. Uh, so a lot of, lot of company. Yeah. And you, you get your taxes in the end, you get your taxes, right? The, the whole point, you don't defer them forever. You defer them until you don't do the next 1031 exchange. Now, hope you hope to defer them forever, but at some point you're going to sell and not buy something new and then you pay the taxes then. And it's a big hit. Well, if this becomes closer to a reality, you will see selling like you've never seen before, right? You will see a wave of people positioning themselves uh, for this before the law takes place. And then, you know, the follow on effect of people just bringing their exchanges and repositioning forward is, you know, a dry period, right? People yeah. would just say, okay, I'm stuck with where I am. And I'll just hold on to this until a new administration comes in and we get more favorable tracks treatment. It's not good for anybody. And so looking at shout outs of the week, Brett and Keith Taylor, Capital Partners, Matt O who says he's been listening to the podcast since the beginning. And it was a great thing during the darker days of COVID. So thank you for that. Uh, Jeff K on Twitter uh, responded saying that uh, he liked the delinquency report, lots of churn in the forbearance bucket, which we talked about in one of the previous episodes. Gavin M. Dylan on YouTube is currently an undergrad and has entered a summer analyst position and says he loves how much he's learned from the podcast. So thank you for that. Laura S and Sarah on Twitter. So a lot of good comments, but there's a couple that I'm going to call out specifically Bob C who wrote us a pretty nice fan letter. I think I'll call. And he said that he heard first on our podcast, talk about lumber prices and the moratorium on uh, at least regarding the CDC's position on the moratorium. And you heard it here first. Jody Wise said the same thing. And Eugene D sent us a story from Mail Online saying that hotels in the UK are now adding bespoke menus for pets known as Bone Appetit. The menu includes beef dagignon and mutt roast. So thank you, Eugene, for that tidbit on hotels serving those that we love most, our pets that we like to take on vacation with us. And with that, we'll close. And thanks to our producer, Haley Keene. Join us next week as we review what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question, a comment, send us an email to podcast at trep.com. For more info, visit trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well.